Before I went public with the Murder Etc. investigation, I worked hard under the radar for nearly two years, careful in every way to not tip my hand too early. Worried, some might say paranoid, somebody would choose to end my investigation before I ever got to tell the story. A year into that time, Larry Smith was the first person I trusted enough to meet face to face. I can remember when I was a kid, my grandmother, she was Church of God. She used to read a little bit of Revelation. That's Smith talking in the pavilion of a park near my house, one I chose because I knew the layout well. The stories he told me when we communicated online were harrowing. I didn't doubt what he knew or just how deep I was going to have to dig. So when we finally agreed to meet, I asked Larry to give me some information about himself so I could run a background check on him, so I would know just exactly who I was about to meet. I assumed he would want the same information from me, especially after I told him that more than one person had warned me going public with this story could be dangerous. Larry surprised me with his trust in me and with a certain kind of courage I neither had nor knew. And I never went to church as a kid. I was a grown man before I ever started studying and become, become a Christian. But I remember them talking about the mark of the beast, the mark of the beast. And if you don't take it, they'll hold you down and they'll stamp you, they'll kill you. And as a child now, 12 or under, I remember thinking, okay, I'm not gonna accept the mark of the beast. I'll just let them kill me. And when they kill me, bam, I go straight to heaven. That was my reasons of a child. Larry had told me people had been afraid for too long and that he was going to tell me what he knew about the people of 1975 Greenville, including the criminals and Rufus and Frank Looper, the two men murdered on January 31st of that year. Larry said even if his revelations weren't gigantic, he was going to tell me anyway because he was not going to be afraid. The Bible says the dead know not anything. They're laying in the grave. There's no consciousness of time or anything. So. If a man takes my life, the Bible says that death is like a sleep. So if my God is powerful enough to call me back, and he said he'll come back when he calls us from the grave, man, when he wakes me up from my sleep, I'm going to spend eternity with him. Eternity with him. Even if you aren't a person of faith who believes in eternity, there's something compelling about Larry's courage to do what he feels is the right thing. Some people get their courage from their heart, some from their guts, some from a bottle. Larry Smith gets his from his faith. And so, he wasn't worried about meeting me alone, or speaking the name of a powerful man, or telling me his family's secrets. He wasn't worried, and he wasn't afraid, of me or anyone else. And so, I don't fear any man, because if a man takes my life on earth, it's going to be as if, I just took a little nap because the next thing I see is going to be my Savior coming in the clouds. And so there is no need to fear man because man, he might put you in a sleep, death, but he's not going to take your life because Jesus is going to take us back. This story has taken me to places I never expected to be. I've been scared for good reasons and for stupid reasons. Maybe someday I'll tell you about the one night I sat up with a killer in the dark shivering in the cold as he smoked half a pack of cigarettes and whispered old Greenville stories and how we both nearly came out of our skin when a cat jumped off a nearby truck and landed beside us. But that's a story about me being scared, 
That's not Larry. Because Larry Smith, he's not scared. If your faith is in God and you hold true to that, there ain't no need to fear man. Man can't take your life. I can put you to sleep, but he can't take your life. <laughs> I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder, Etc. To get to the infield of the Anderson Motor Speedway, you have to talk to two smiling ladies in a small building. Bye, Have a good night. Sign your name. Get one of those paper wristbands like you'd wear at a music festival. You have to wait for cars with screaming engines, some driven by people as young as 16, as they try to hold tight through turn four and then wail down the front straightaway. You can wait here and go a stoic man will hold a cigarette in one hand and push open a gate with his other. And then maybe you'll follow a woman wearing a black t-shirt, one with words on the back that tell you she's a racer's wife. And then, like crossing a steep and weirdly angled street, let gravity guide you forward to the inside of an oval of asphalt that is three-eighths of a mile around. It's then, and there, you can ask yourself, what exactly am I doing here? It's a different type of community, and you've got people from all walks of life, just like the different series um, and the classes of races that come out here, the different type of cars. Racing may not be your thing, but millions of people all over America spend Sunday morning at church and then Sunday afternoon watching NASCAR. But even some of those fans may not know about cars like these, the modifieds, the late models, the pure stocks, the vintage stocks, the mini stocks, or the legends. They run on tracks like this one at the Anderson Motor Speedway. Those big money races, the ones you see on network television, their tradition has its roots under the asphalt of speedways like these. Tracks that serve like the arteries to the heart of the American South. One nation. Where they still say the Pledge of Allegiance, where they pray. I do pray for our troops, including my son, to keep us free so that way we can be able to do this. And where an angelic girl stands and sings among men with bloody knuckles and grease stained shirts. This is God and Country America, where every prayer asks first for safety. So much for this time we can gather together keep the drivers and crew members safe on and off this racetrack. The track isn't exactly a war zone or a police muster room, but no matter how carefree and reckless it may sound when it starts, drivers, start your <laughs> The men and women behind the wheel know the next lap they make could be their last. My wife's a critical care paramedic mm -hmm. and I'm an intermediate. We've been doing this going on 17 years now. We've been taking care of this ever since. There are firefighters and paramedics in the infield. And up top with a bird's eye view, people with headphone covered ears and the most important eyes at the track. They're called spotters. They see what the drivers can't. Using radios, they tell the drivers when trouble's ahead, when they have a chance to make a move, or if a car is close to catching them. In short, if the driver has a question, spotters do whatever they can to find the answer. He used to be my Waldo. He ended up in every single picture I ever took. That is Christy Smith Palmer. This is the famous flipping jam. She isn't a spotter, or at least not the kind with headphones. She's a photographer who works the racing scene in upstate South Carolina. I got some pictures for you. I'll just give them to your mama. Yeah, perfect. She's wearing a black polo shirt with the letters MRO embroidered on the front. 
MRO is Motor Racing Outreach, a Christian ministry that works inside the racing world. This community is generational. That's the biggest thing. And, you know, I was away from the racing scene for years. And once I came back with MRO about four years ago, five years ago, all of a sudden it's like I started recognizing names. Maybe more so than any American sport, racing is a family affair. Fathers not only have sons who race, they have sons on their pit crew and vice versa. The amazing flipping Jansen, the one who rolled his car not too long ago, that's Christy's nephew. Now, you know, if you don't win tonight, I'm never coming back because oh, when no. I'm not here, you win. Oh, when no. I'm here, the racetrack is like a weekly family reunion. It's not uncommon to have family members racing against each other, generations and brotherhoods competing and careening through the danger for the love of the sport as their spotters sometimes are forced to watch helplessly. A week before Christy introduced me to the drivers in Anderson, South Carolina, she was in the field of the Greenville Pickens Speedway with her camera as two brothers' cars collided and exploded. One of those brothers watched the other taken away to the Augusta Burn Center. It's where you go if you suffer the most serious burns you can get. Last week there was an accident at the track and it, it was a horrific accident. It didn't matter what track that you primarily race at or what class you race at, everybody comes together and supports each other, you know, and, and makes sure everybody is taken care of. It's nights like that, Christy and the other people from MRO are most important. Christy's photography is part of her ministry, but the rest of it is working as a kind of spiritual spotter, looking for the people who need the help the most people who have questions, and then offering the best answers she can. But I'm not home praying for you. I'll be yeah. here praying for you. <laughs> That's right. None of that explains why I, an investigative podcast reporter, am in the middle of this infield. But up at the top of the grandstand, there is a man who can explain. You might recognize his voice. From the very start. From the very first episode of Murder, Etc. All the talk was, it was an inside job. That is Larry Smith, the man who made a career of selling wheels. In a lot of cases, racing wheels. Larry Smith, Christy Smith Palmer's daddy. I was talking about so many others that's been involved in drugs and car thefts, and car rings and everything else a while ago, you know, with Leonard. You get to talking and he knew a lot of the same people I did and talking and he said, yeah, I knew your uncle, I knew your uncle. He's standing just a few feet from Leonard Brown. He was telling me about making this sex machine. A man he had watched on television in the 1970s as Brown campaigned for sheriff. But they'd never met personally. Leonard Brown Jr. is there too. And so is Andy Etheridge. I'm an amateur historian. A guy who studied this case as long as I have. An hour earlier, these men hadn't met each other face to face. But this night, they stand at the racetrack, talking, laughing, like old friends. They've proven to be some of the best spotters in the business, the investigative podcast business. If I have a question, they're among the people who go looking for the answers. If as a listener, you're immersed in the narrative arc this story's taking, you've probably figured out this episode is different than those you've heard so far. I still have a huge part of this story to tell, but based on what I've heard and learned since the Murder Etc. story came out, we need a quick reset to fill in some blanks. We'll get back to 1975 next week. But this episode, the 14th full episode so far, 
is going to be about questions, those that listeners have sent in. I want to know why all the secrecy, why people do clam up. Is there someone still alive? The Smith family, the Leonard Browns, and Andy Etheridge, they've raised a lot of questions too. I just can't for the life of me understand why. And I have questions that have plagued me for years. I mean, they never found a gun. Everything's just kind of hearsay and nothing really concrete. That is Debbie Davenport. I met her at the racetrack that night. She had just binge listened to the first 13 episodes. Debbie is like a lot of Murder Etc. listeners, shocked at what they see as, on its face, a clear injustice. Debbie is among the people intent on learning more. The good old boy system was fully and entrenched in this area. And Murder Etc. has another kind of listener, too. The kind journalists call sources. If you're just catching up, this episode came out nearly four months after the first episode. And I'm still hearing from people who can tell me things I didn't know when I started. Things I need to know to finish this story. In this week alone, I spent several hours on the phone with someone whose father was one of the highest-ranking law enforcement officials in a 50-mile radius on the day Frank and Rufus Looper died. I spoke with someone whose father was a narcotics agent who worked under Frank Looper. I spoke with someone who was once a law enforcement officer who today can tell Fast Eddie Williamson stories that will make your blood run cold. And I talked to someone I can't even describe without giving away who it is. Those people are my spotters too. And they're good at what they do. If you put all of those people together, you have more than a podcast audience. You have a community of people working together for a common cause. In this case, working to find the truth. That is one of the reasons I ended up washed in the smell of Speedway perfume, racing fuel, melting rubber, and sweat. The other reason? Christy Smith Palmer had some amateurs she wanted me to meet. Did anything ever tie that back to Wakefield? Did it tie it to anybody else? You know, I know they didn't exactly have DNA and other stuff, but that would have been their strongest evidence to me. David Garrett has a full-time job. He's a longtime sales manager at a car dealership. He quickly proved to be one of those listeners who wasn't listening only for entertainment. He wanted something more. He wanted to help. It shows early in the investigation that they had a footprint they found at the scene. They did find shells at the scene. Did they do any kind of investigation with the shells? Was the footprint ever matched up to Wakefield or anybody else, Larry Poole, that was investigating? David had several questions just like that one. Didn't the cops have a footprint? In fact, that was the first question he asked me when I met him and his fellow listeners at the racetrack that night. We were there because of a group called Amateurs Etc. That is the community of listeners organized around finding the truth in the Looper murders people from all over America and Canada, and a great many from upstate South Carolina. The group got its tongue-in-cheek name from Sheriff Cash Williams' description of Greenville's professional criminals in 1975. He called the very effective, very efficient, very dedicated criminals a bunch of amateurs. Amateurs Etc. members offer a small donation each month to support the production of the show. They meet in a private Facebook group talk on the phone, and share text messages. And sometimes they get together in person to share information and work together, like a team of spotters working to get the truth to the finish line. 
Larry Smith's daughter, Christy, is one of the driving forces behind Amateurs Etc. She knows there are retired cops who either went to school with Frank Looper or won the award named in his honor, and she wants their help. My loyalty to schoolmates, I wouldn't let that case close. So, instead of sitting back and letting history be history, Christy was among those listeners who started digging in. Digging in so much, she's quickly becoming an expert in white over red Cadillacs in the 1970s. She's spending her own money to support the show's investigative efforts, filing freedom of information requests, and spreading the word to every racer and racing fan she can find, like one who wanted to pay her for the pictures she took of his car. She declined money, but made him a deal. No, but you just have to go listen to the podcast. I've been kind of curious about it. I just ain't never got time to Well, now's the time to start, because you might start recognizing some names around the track. She also organized the Amateurs Etc. meeting at the Anderson Motor Speedway. At times, the amateurs struggled to hear each other over the screaming car engines. But they were excited to see each other face to face. They, like me, discovered a stock car race is not the ideal place to produce a podcast. This is Brad Willis. Hey, how are you, man? Very nice to meet you. But it is a damned good place to start getting some questions answered. So let's do that. Remember David Garrett's question? It shows early in the investigation that they had a footprint they found at the scene. Was the footprint ever matched up to Wakefield or anybody else? Larry Poole, it was investigated. Here's the answer. On the day of the murders, a newspaper photographer snapped a photo of two officers making a plaster cast of a footprint outside the Looper garage. Footprints could have been important evidence because the key witness against Charles Wakefield said the thing that stood out the most about him was the unusual high-heeled shoes she saw. But to answer David Garrett's question, did that footprint match up to anybody? The answer is, we have no idea. Because in the police file attorney Eric Gottlieb got hold of, there isn't one mention of the cops ever finding a footprint or making a cast of it, despite the newspaper picture proving they at least tried to. And no matter how many times the witnesses against Wakefield mentioned his unusual shoes, not one person at the trial talked about police finding a footprint. That wasn't the only question David had. He couldn't wrap his head around the idea that an average robber, in a hurry, trying to escape, could kill two men, one an armed law enforcement officer, with two precision shots. How much was ever put into the two shots fired just seems like something professional. And with Looper walking into the garage with a 357 in his waistband, how does the guy just fire two shots and has two dead people and one is a trained cop? That's where it got me. It just didn't make sense to David. He knew Frank Looper had handled guns since he was a child because he had heard Looper's cousin say so on murder, etc. I always thought because Frank left the house to go to the garage armed, I always thought that either it was a a professional contract killer that got the jump on him. That, you know, just the ordinary robber wouldn't have got the jump on Frank. And Frank was great with firearms. But there was another reason. I'd given David a copy of the very first police sketch of the crime scene. They did find shells at the scene. Did they do any kind of investigation with the shells? David is like many people who've heard this story and wondered about shell casings. There were none because whoever fired the shots fired them from a revolver, a gun that doesn't spit out its spent shells. 
the police didn't find shells, but they did find not two, but three bullets, one 32 caliber slug in each of the loopers, and one outside the garage, just beyond what looked like a bullet hole in the garage wall. I'm going to tell you a lot more about those bullets in a future episode. But for now, the ballistics report said the bullets that killed the loopers came from the same gun and were the same brand of ammunition. The third bullet, the one outside the garage, was a different brand of 32 caliber and could never be forensically connected to the others due to its condition. Frank Looper's gun, a 357, had all six bullets in it when police inspected it later. He never fired a shot. Next question. What was all this about a truth serum test? Answer, yeah, that happened. Detectives Mike Bridges and Jim Christopher did everything they could to get Charles Wakefield to admit to the murders, including shooting him up with sodium pentothal, AKA truth serum. If you've never heard of it, it's basically the same drug doctors use to knock out patients. It's also one of the drugs executioners give condemned inmates when they kill them. Given in a lighter dose, it reduces the suspect's inhibitions, and because lying is harder than telling the truth, it can make a suspect essentially forget how to lie. On Monday, February 10th, less than two weeks after the murders, Wakefield signed a consent form to have a state doctor administer the truth serum. I felt sedated. You know, I knew that I wasn't in my natural state. He just asked me some basic questions about the loopers and the looper murders, and I, I answered the questions. And, and I just sort of got the sense that they didn't like the answers. Although Wakefield doesn't recall these details, he also signed a second consent form to have someone with the state police administer truth serum again the following Thursday. Keep in mind, by this time, Wakefield wasn't in jail. Police had to let him go because they couldn't charge him with anything. He was under no obligation to go to Columbia for another dose of truth serum. But he did because the police paid him to go. They paid him $22. Captain Harold Jennings wrote his chief and asked for Jim Christopher to be reimbursed for the money, saying, quote, We had to kind of con Wakefield. That's what Jennings put in his reimbursement request that the police conned Wakefield by giving him $22 to go, what Jennings called day pay. That's not my language. That's the language of Harold Jennings, the man who a few weeks later became the chief of police. For their $22, the police got a trip to Columbia, South Carolina, and apparently nothing else, because Jim Christopher never wrote another report about it. That same memo proved to be very revealing, because here's what else it said. When police questioned Wakefield during the second dose of truth serum, it wasn't about the Looper murders. It was about a murder that happened two days earlier. Somebody beat and stabbed a 75-year-old man named Walker Rochester to death and stole his guns. One of those guns was a 32, made by a company called Clerk First. Police thought it was possible whoever killed Rochester stole his 32 and used it to kill the loopers. Today, there's no way of knowing if that was the case, because Wakefield didn't offer any clues while dosed with sodium pentothal. The police never found Rochester's gun, and 
they never found the gun that killed the loopers. Next question. Just who in the Murder Etc. story was connected to the racing world? Answer. Quite a few folks. Here are some of them. Ballard George. He didn't want to cross him because he would kill you or have you killed. The man who arranged the hit on Bugs Hassey? He and a lot of his family were part of the racing scene. Luke Cannon. Luke just throwed money like it was nothing because it was an endless supply, you know. If I run out, I just go to the bank and get some more. A Dawson gang member and reputed drug kingpin came from a car dealing family and later in life was a racetrack promoter. Another Dawson gang member, Phil Gibson. Phil Gibson had race cars. He was in the race car business, but he was losing money, and I think that's why he joined him. One of his drivers, named Jerry, and Phil's brother, Tip, don't forget, Fast Eddie Williamson told me Jerry and Tip were the men who fired the shots into Frank Looper's house in the weeks before the Looper murders. Next question, and this one's mine, and it doesn't have an answer, yet. I've been looking at a Western Union telegram for the past 20 years. It doesn't make sense to me. I got a document from the FBI that I don't think anyone's read since probably 1975, and I realized that telegram didn't make sense to FBI agents either. I've already told you, when Greenville's resident FBI agent, Tom Donahue, offered his help in the Looper murder investigation. The local cops turned him away. I can remember the day of the murder. I went over there. They didn't want any help at all. They turned his thumbs down. Why do you right. think that was? I think they knew who did it. I think they knew damn well who set it up, or some of them did. They didn't want anybody coming in to look at the truth. What I haven't told you yet is that the FBI did investigate the Looper murders in the smallest possible way. The only way police ask them to help at all. It's just one piece of paper with some words on it. But every time I've looked at it over the past 20 years, I've thought, this is more important than it looks. Even today, I can't answer for it, but I'm hoping one of our listeners can. So here's my question. If someone sent a Western Union telegram in 1975, was there anything to stop that person from faking where that telegram originated? Put another way, in 1975, if I wanted to send a telegram to Greenville, South Carolina, and make it look like it came from New York City, would that have been a hard thing to do? Or was it simply a matter of giving any Western Union clerk anywhere some fake information? If you can help me with that, please get in touch, because I think it's important, and I need help. Back at the racetrack, those ladies who gave me my wristband are working to help the racer who is still recovering from his fiery crash. I'm working on getting a hard drive together to come out there. And if he needs it bad enough, they'll take it from Greenville straight to Christy Smith-Palmer has been working for that racer and his family too. And when she isn't doing that, or helping to run a women's shelter, she's thinking about her communities, the one at the racetrack, and the one in amateurs, etc., largely made up of people who don't believe Charles Wakefield Jr. killed Frank and Rufus Looper. Christy thinks about people who have worked in law enforcement for years, who believe what she believes, and have privately said so. When she thinks about those people, she hopes they can find it in their hearts to join her 
And you suspect that the evidence wasn't there to convict Charles Wakefield. Open that case up until it is solved without a shadow of a doubt. That's just how I was brought up with loyalty and how I feel about my friends, especially anybody I went to school with. So I, I'm curious why they let it just go. And I mean, it's just like they were okay with letting an innocent man live in jail. That's just morally and ethically wrong. Christy Smith is her father's daughter. When I met her dad, Larry, for the first time under that park pavilion, he said something. I've played it on the show before. When he said it, I was still more than six months away from putting out the podcast. I'd spent years with my head full of facts and stories most people didn't know. But so far, I had told almost no one what I knew, and I wasn't sure if I ever would. I met Larry, and he said this. It's selfish. It's selfish motives is the only thing that will keep you from telling the truth. If you're afraid to tell the truth because of fear, you're not much of a man or a woman. If you're afraid to tell the truth because you're afraid of the consequences, shame be on you. I kept hearing those words in my head. Shame be on you. Larry was talking about people who lived back in the 1970s, who should have been ashamed they never told their secrets about the Looper murders. I knew that. But I couldn't stop thinking. It doesn't matter if he was talking about other people. He could have just as well been talking about me, if I didn't tell what I know. There was only one thing I could do. It was time to tell the story. One day, I met Larry's daughter, a woman who still hopes a retired cop, a retired crook, or just somebody who's been too scared up to this point will come forward to fill in the last bit of the puzzle. Chrissy's hope is not unfounded optimism, because even when she sees people refusing to look again at the past, she thinks about her community at the track, those families who pass their traditions down generation by generation, as I was rooting for Tasha Porter, because she's a female driver, I realized, well, that's Ed Porter's daughter, and he's on Poinsett Highway. He started his business right across from my dad and Johnny Allen. So it's interesting how everything is generational. The traditions of racing are surviving, but Christy knows the race fans aren't so stuck in the accepted historical narrative that they won't at least listen to what she has to say. There was this moment in the infield Andy Etheridge was walking with us. He'd brought his nine-year-old son with him, not only so his son could see the races, but more importantly, so Andy's son could see his father working to find the truth. Andy and I had no idea how the racers might react when Christie introduced us to them. We're two guys publicly questioning the conviction of a black man accused of killing a law enforcement officer, an officer who had allegedly been threatened by members of their community the racing community. We walked up on an older man using an impact wrench to put lug nuts back on a car, and Christy introduced us. Would you like to sit in a race car, young man? Travel. Oh, yeah. Travel. The guy picked up Andy's son and put him behind the wheel of a fancy race car with the number 60 on the side. I need you to sit in my car and tell me how my seat fits and feels. The man told Andy's son to eat all his vegetables so he could grow up strong. He put the kid on the car and had him raise his arms up in a victory V. And then he told a dad joke. 
The math is so important. What kind of tree does a math teacher like? A geometry. Oh, that's all about the angles and the dangles, and that's what you need to know to build a race car. There we were, a couple of guys at the racetrack, looking for truth in a controversial case, questioning a jury's decision. Me, in a drive-by trucker shirt, put out by the Bitter Southerner, a website that celebrates an enlightened South. Andy teaching his son about justice and injustice in the place both of them grew up. And the old boy with the race car welcomed us like family. In the end, all that man wanted from us was our support in the race. I want you to pull for the 60 tonight. If there's anybody in front of us, you pinch them off. All right? Tell him, yes, sir, we'll do that. Thank you, sir, and happy Father's Day to you, young man. The morning after that Friday night at the Anderson Motor Speedway, I had a meeting scheduled with Charles Wakefield. The topic was a sensitive one and the subject of an upcoming episode. I'd invited Andy Etheridge to sit in on the interview. Wakefield said he was fine with that, but he didn't want two guys firing questions at him. Wakefield didn't elaborate, but in my head, I pictured him sitting in that swivel chair 44 years ago as Bridges and Christopher tag-teamed him. So I asked Andy to let me handle the questions. When I was finished, I ask a question I often do at the end of interviews. More times than not, when I ask someone if they have anything else they want to say, I get the best answers. That's all I need. You want to say anything else? No, I don't want to say anything else. You want to ask me anything else? Not today. I was getting ready to take the microphone off Wakefield's shirt when I heard a voice over my shoulder. It was Andy, being rather unandy like doing the one thing he said he wouldn't do. Can I ask one question? <laughs> he wanted to ask a question. I wasn't prepared for that. I looked at Charles, and then to Andy, and then back to Charles. And I wasn't prepared for Charles to answer as he did. It's up, to him, it's up to you. Let him ask it. All right. And then Andy surprised me again by asking not about Charles Wakefield's alibi or his life before the murders, but instead about Charles Wakefield's faith in God. There ain't no way a man goes 35 years without building enough levels of faith right. to carry him through. My right. question to you is, did you walk in to those doors with a certain amount and you built on it or did you find it in there in all the time andy and i have known each other we've never talked about religion in any meaningful way but that was andy's question did wakefield take his faith to prison or find it there wakefield said he'd always been spiritual but he didn't get saved until 1983 seven years after a judge sentenced him to death and I started developing this relationship with God. And I would think about my situation with my family because my family and I, we were sort of kind of never really that close. And it was sort of like, you know, all I had was that relationship with God. After the interview was finished, I invited Wakefield and Andy to lunch for some barbecue. Andy had to go pick up his son from a birthday party. But before he left, he shook Charles Wakefield's hand and he said, do you know why I ask you that question? Andy paused as Wakefield and I looked at him. And then he said, because that's the one question I've wanted to ask you for the past 20 years. Andy finally had his answer.
when Wakefield answered Andy's question, he spoke for a while, remembering his family, preachers he knew, and people who made him believe he wouldn't die in prison. Along the way, he answered a question I've had on my mind and in my heart since I started this project. How does a man survive in a cage for decade after decade, knowing a truth almost no one else believes and realizing no one is coming to help how does anyone survive in a prison full of hardened criminals, a place where you literally have to walk through pools of blood to go to the library? That doesn't even seem like a question that has an answer. But Wakefield had one. Charles Wakefield said, in that murderous crowd, he was alone, except for the presence of God. And with that in his heart, he sung himself to survival. The children of Israel, they were in captivity. But even though they were in captivity, they would sing the songs of Zion. And they would sing joyous songs. But they were in captivity. And I remember when I was in captivity, and I would sing certain songs. I would get to the point where I would feel the presence of God. Because... That was all I had. And that's how I made it. That's how I made it. Thanks for listening to this different kind of episode. If you stick around to the end, you'll hear what's coming up in some future episodes, too, as we resume our time in 1975 and the absolute insanity of that year. If you're interested in joining up with the Amateurs Etc. group, you can, for a very small donation. It helps me cover the many costs of putting this show together for you. By the way, special thanks to listener and my friend, Chuck Stillman, out in California, who joined up at the highest level of support he could. Thanks, Chuck. If you want to know more about the group, we have a link on the front page of our website, MurderEtcPodcast.com. That's MurderETCPodcast.com. That is also where you can see documents, photos, and written stories that give you more information about what you hear on Murder Etc. And if you're looking for even more than that, and you want to see behind the scenes, you can do that in the private Amateurs Etc. group, where I'll sometimes reveal information before making it public. And with that in mind, here's what's coming up this summer and later this year on Murder Etc. <laughs> case was a it was a linchpin of the calendar in Greenville I feel like that period of time and what was going on then everything changed dramatically after that it seemed country is at our home we're leaving in about 30 minutes to go to Atlanta Ballard is driving I'll be in the passenger seat the country will be in the back seat with a rifle and a pistol the Dixie Mafia the Dawson gang all they really needed was a 18, 19, 20-year-old black guy to run, to be a lookout, run from the scene, draw all attention to Pendleton Street. I would like for my life to stay quiet. It's been a long, hard road. I've had a quiet life, and I would love for it to continue to, to stay that way. Billy won. Billy got to be chief judge of the Fourth Circuit. He won. That's it. The game's over. He got to do everything he wanted in life. Will people hold it against us for doing all this talking? You'll hear all that 
and much more later this season on Murder Etc.